So you should have in front of you an outline that on the top says eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series, element 7G, the pattern of five first steps into the kingdom of Christ. Step three of the five steps is called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It can also be referred to as having being filled with the Holy Spirit, an outpouring of the Spirit, a greater release of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as we always want to make very clear, those who have re- truly been regenerated in Christ have received the Holy Spirit. But this is a second experience that's very clear if you follow the pattern of the book of Acts, that it's a second encounter with the Holy Spirit that brings a greater release and, and, a, and a potential to regularly be filled. You know, in Acts 4, when they're threatened not to speak in Jesus' name, and they cry out to God in prayer and say, you know, grant, take note of their threats, Lord, and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, or some translations say confidence. It says the room where they were praying was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The only problem is all of those people were the same uh, 3,000 and some people who'd been filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So that's conclusive proof that there are, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Spirit as we're, is, is really a second encounter with the Holy Spirit that gives you a prayer language uh, to worship God in and enables you to uh, tap into and draw on and be filled with and the power of the Spirit. It should bring you into a propensity to experience both spiritual gifts and spiritual fruits more fully, more completely, more regularly, more often. You cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life by effort. Now, at God's initiative and by His grace, there are efforts we take. That's the mystery of how it all works, but but it's not from our initiative or our performance base. It's by spiritual disciplines based on His grace. So, uh, this, uh, you know, so we're actually kind of coterminously doing two series. We're redoing our Baptizing the Holy Spirit series from uh, the version we had in 2012 or something like that. That's four parts, and this is going to end up around 12 to 15 parts. Now, uh, today we're going to do Chapter 5, the activities of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And uh, what we have done so far is... Uh, Chapters 1, 2, and 3 covered all the material that the old chapter 1 covered, but now in much more detail. For instance, in the old chapter 1, we looked at three word pictures of the Holy Spirit. In this chapter 1, we looked at eight word pictures of the Holy Spirit from Scripture. Uh, In the old one, we looked at the person and deity of, of the Holy Spirit or the ontology of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that in much more detail, and we looked at uh, three different ways of talking about the attributes of God. The most important for what we're doing now is is the understanding the difference between the being of God or the ontology of God and the economy of God or the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we covered in chapter 2, let me think, no, I'm sorry, chapter 3, uh, kind of leads into what we're covering now. Four, five, and six are on the activities of the Holy Spirit that grow out of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and proceed from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And last week, we looked in chapter four at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. 
Now, that should take you down to Roman numeral 6 on your page, uh, about toward three-quarters of the way down the bottom. Some people say it helps if I point where we are in the outline. And um, part B there is uh, four major categories we looked at of the things the Holy Spirit does. But part C is where I want to land because we kind of hurried that at the end. So there's three takeaways I want you to get from studying the, uh, the comprehensive study of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You should see that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 that we'll be talking about today were experienced by Old Testament followers of Christ. And they were, they were followers of Christ, even though they did not know that name, because uh, they, they were always saved by faith in the promises of God, in the promises of, of the covenants. And so um, seven of the gifts of the Spirit are, are experiences by God's people. The only ones that were not are speaking in tongues and in interpretations of tongues, which are unique to the greater promises of the Holy Spirit that, that we are trace, tracing all the way through the Bible. We're going to do a whole week on just the, the idea of the promise in the Bible and how that promise, all the promises of God, culminate in a Pentecost experience for each believer, whereby you get a prayer language and you should become a prophet or prophetess of God and move in the power of the Holy Spirit as a normal part of your daily Christian life. That's where we're heading. So second takeaway so the, is that these, the seven gifts that were experienced uh, in the Old Testament were more limited in their distribution than they are in the New Testament. It's clear in the New Testament that God desires all his sons and daughters to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. All your sons and daughters are to prophesy, see, see visions, and have gifts of the Spirit, each one. You know, when the gifts of the Spirit are talked about, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, the word each one is repeated over and over. Everyone receives these things. It's, uh, it's part of our sub-biblical Christianity that we're trying, you know, our goal is great, in Grace Christian Fellowship is by the grace of God uh, to humbly restudy, rethink, find, the, find how Christianity got to be uh, so impotent in our culture, build a kind of community that can become a world-changing force as the church often has been throughout the centuries, and as it's clear in the Bible, the church is supposed to be. And we will not do that without recovering the power and ministry and purpose of the Holy Spirit. So, um, the less frequent distribution of the Old Testament is primarily because they were they the gifts of the spirit mostly tended to be limited to priests, judges, prophets and kings. Whereas in the new covenant because we are in Christ, God wants all his followers to be priests, prophets, judges and kings because Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of all those offices. Now, the third takeaway I want you to get is that the New Testament is a better covenant. And that's what we're going to kind of go into today. And shoot, I left my... Let me use my New American Standard Bible, the red one. I, I should have pulled it up in my phone and had it ready to go. What I have listed on the page is Jeremiah 31, 
verse 31 through 34 in the New American Standard Bible. Uh, you can follow it on the page, but I'm going to read it as it's quoted word for word in Hebrews chapter 8. And you're going to see something that some people would take exception to, uh, but it's done by the apostles and it's the inscripturated word of God, where um, in quoting these scriptures, the writer of Hebrews is taking some liberties with the Old Testament text that we would uh, be a little bit scandalized at in modern times. And uh, yet, it's an inspired word of God. Keep that in mind. So you'll notice that it doesn't read exactly the same. And it's not just because of uh, the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text. It's because the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are interpreting the Old Testament re rendering of it and adding an interpretation to it as they, as they say this. So let's get into it. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord. So far, so good. When I will affect, uh, instead of make, and so that's a little bit, make is, is good, but affect is I'm going to make it, and it's, I'm going to empower it. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, contrary, by the way, if you've been raised dispensationalist and so forth, you've been taught that the that uh, the church is not, nothing that is talked about with Judah or Jerusalem or Ephraim or any of the other ways of talking about the Old Testament people, God, do not apply to the church today. This verse says it does. <laughs> it's lots of verses in the New Testament. So, uh, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. I, I meant to follow along here. To, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. Whereas the uh, Old Testament says they broke it. In other words, they didn't stay under the gracious covenant of God. They, they broke it actually by the idolatry of performance-based because that is ultimately trying to be God yourself. And Israel's sin over and over and over again when God made covenant with Israel in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, they said, all that you have said, we will do. They, they started right away to respond to God with performance base. And God's all, intention all along was no one shall ever be saved by works. And he used the entire history of Israel to try to get that idea out of his people because it's part of our sin nature to want to hang on to some degree of performance base, because without performance base, you have nothing to boast in before God. You actually have to be humble and reliant on God. So that's how they broke the covenant. Uh, although I was a husband to them, uh, where am I? Shed a little bit more light. Um, now, let's see. Uh, for they did not, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So that is added in. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds and I'll write them upon their hearts. 
Because God never intended for them to stay on tablets of stone, commanding us from the outside, as Paul talks about in Romans 7. All that performance-based and external law does is external law flatters the sin within us so that we become more greater sinners, so that hopefully we'd be set free by recognizing how sinful we are and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Uh, And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, not just his neighbor. Now, that's important because what Israel always did, part of the reason they came under the judgment of God, is the Old Testament makes all kinds of laws and provisions to reach out to the aliens and those around us, and Israel always refused to do it. They were always hateful and prejudiced of people who weren't following with them. Just like the disciples, when they said, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons, but he does, they don't hang with us. Should we? And so we tried to hinder them. <laughs> and Jesus didn't say, oh, thank you for looking into my interest. You guys are such great guys ever. <laughs> Appreciate your cover, covering my back. He said, stop it. Leave him alone. For no one will do a mighty work in my name and soon speak evil of me. That's been the whole problem. That's why you, the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity and all of this happened in the first place. So the, uh, they will not teach their fellow citizens, uh, which, which includes every Gentile Jew, every person who becomes a follower of Yahweh, and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, for I'll be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember them no more. And when he said this, a new covenant, he, he made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So the main thing you need to understand here is the new covenant is a better covenant enacted on better promises with better provisions. Now, hopefully you know by now, we did this several times with Genesis 15, where God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, and says to follow me, and I'll make you a father to nations, and in you all the families, and the, and the Hebrew word there is um, the word for clans, because uh, You'll see that uh, sometimes when it's quote, that's quoted in the New Testament, it says nations, because if you kind of think about the whole thing biblically, in the families uh, of, of the early chapters of Genesis and so forth become the tribes and clans that become the nations of the world. So it's all saying the same thing. Every nation, all peoples, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group will be blessed through, through the followers of Abraham. Okay, so um, when God says that to Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, he has Abraham gather all these animals together, remember, and slay them and lay them uh, side by side. And then God himself passes through them at dark, speaking of the fact that this, no covenant, as Galatians brings out, 
of the Bible can ever be made obsolete. That's why dispensationalism, which is the majority opinion in evangelicalism, is beyond a bad theological paradigm. It's actually heresy. It's actually saying the Old Testament is not really the inerrant inspired word of God, even though every church that is dispensationalist says we believe that the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God, but then we have ideas that negate that. So, no covenant, as Paul says, can ever be set aside or added conditions to once it's ratified. If Nathan and I make an agreement, he used to rent from me years ago before he owned a house. Uh, well, not that long ago. But, uh, and, uh, you know, I can't go, you know, uh, Nathan, let's, I'm going to change the covenant. And he can't go, I'm going to change the covenant. Right? So what God did with Abraham, what he always does, what he did with Adam and Eve when he provided the, uh, they tried to cover themselves with, speaking of the work of the flesh and so forth, when he covered them with skins, when God passed through the skins with Abraham, God is signifying, I will fulfill the covenant. Because the clear message of the Bible is every person God enters into covenant with is a covenant breaker. And in fact, the whole unfolding purposes of God is to help you see the depth of how what a covenant breaker you are. So that you will be driven to Christ and grace. You know, uh, I know many people who say, well, I went to church when I was a kid and I had something in my heart to God. And, you know, and then I just gave up on it because... I, I was such a sinner. You're right. That's the point. <laughs> that's actually how God says it makes you the blessed are the poor in spirit. He wants you to, to come to him with lots of problems. And until you realize you have lots of problems, you haven't taken your first step into the kingdom of God yet. So God, the new covenant I probably can't go into this much longer because there's some good stuff I don't want to miss later today. But the new covenant is a better covenant, and the better promises include that God himself will fulfill it. So God hasn't called you to pray a sinner's prayer, be forgiven, and then start to perform after that. That's kind of how it's done in modern Christianity, right? It's, it's uh, grace plus works equals acceptance with God. God has called you to come naked, ashamed, confessing your sins, convicted, totally understanding how deep your sin is, and, and receive his grace and walk out of the power of his resurrection all the time. Because without that, there is nothing good innately that dwells within you. Every aspect of the image of God we are created in is retained, but it's all defiled by sin. We didn't just fall into loving beer and other physical sins like lust or sleeping too much or gluttony, which is my battle. Uh, <laughs> um, we, you know, our minds are fallen, our spirits are fallen, our attitudes are fallen, our motivations are fallen. We're Every aspect of our being has been corrupted completely by sin.
And so um, the new covenant is not only that God will forgive as we preach it today, so many people that it, it are being ripped off. That is great, but that's not enough. You know, Adam, what you've been discovering in the last few months is not only are you forgiven, but now you're being empowered to be who you always should have been in the first place. Right? That's what it means to walk in the power of his resurrection and the power of grace. Because the Christian life is not difficult. It's utterly impossible. And it can only be done out of the power of his resurrection, by the power of his Holy Spirit, by the ongoing flow of his grace into our being every minute. You know, there's a beautiful Christian hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour, which we should probably modernize to, I Need Thee Every Nanosecond. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, All right. So Hebrews 7.22, Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant, better promises, and so forth. So what you need to see is there is no way, even though it's a popular doctrine that out of the unbelief of Western culture with the Enlightenment, there is actually no scriptural defense. We're going to talk about the one verse in 1 Corinthians 13 that they try to use and they twist out of context for a whole week uh, coming up. But There is no possible defense for believing that the power of the Holy Spirit should be anything less than what it was in Christ and the apostles because we have a better covenant with better provisions, and he is called in Hebrews 10.29, the Spirit of grace. And if there is less than the power of the Holy Spirit that you see in the Gospels in the book of Acts, the problem is not in God. The problem is in our sets. You know, don't worry, the problem's not in your set. It is in your set. (laughs) The problem is in your posture toward faith, grace, etc., and trying to do it on your own. Uh, If you really analyze a lot of the prosperity faith gospel, the whole message is you study Scripture, you memorize Scripture, and you work it up. And I've never been able to even work up a raisin let alone some abundant fruit. Ask my wife. No, don't ask her. (laughs) She knows. (laughs) All right, so so let's look at the ministry of Jesus with regard to the Holy Spirit because, again, what God did by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was given to fulfill his promises. It was part of his provision. But we have better provision. For us to expect anything less than what Moses walked in or Elijah walked in is to negate the word of God. And it's very clear that God not only wants to do this for each and every member of the body of Christ, but in fact he wants to do it through bodies of Christians instead of through superstars. I was casting out demons with uh, three or four help, helpers the other night, and uh, Anvesh was uh, helping me, and I was like, wow, you know, we've done this so many times together now, it's really becoming 
a very good team. You know, like he knows what to do when I do this and he does that, and then I know what to do when he does that. And it's, you know, God never intended for people to do this stuff by themselves. So, um, let's look at the ministry of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the better Abraham. Hopefully you can just think a little bit about each of these biblical characters and understand that as we go. Isaac, who is a type of the son in Genesis 24 and so forth, is, Jesus is the better son of Abraham. He's the, he's the fulfillment of all the foreshadowing that Isaac is. Jesus is the progenitor of a new covenant and a new people like Abraham. He's the better son, like Isaac. Uh, he's the better Israel, or Jacob. And in fact, if you remember in this series, element, the Roman number one, element number four, is the most missed part of the gospel today. This is what the series is all about, all the ways we've reduced the gospel to leave out major parts of the message. Almost no one presents the gospel with the history of Israel. But there are no gospel in the book of Acts that does not labor heavily with the Old Testament, even when Paul's speaking to the Athenians who don't know anything about the Old Testament. Paul refers to three major Old Testament concepts in his presentation to the Athenians. Because Jesus is Israel. Out of Egypt did I call my son. The reason God sent both Israel and Jesus to Egypt is is because God always calls his son out of Egypt. Just as you as sons and daughters were called out of Egypt because you lived there in the mystery of what Egypt represents. I dwelt too long in Egypt. I hope you feel the same. Um, all right, so, uh, you know, Jesus is the better Joseph, right? Remember, his father's favorite son, Jesus is the only begotten eternal Son of God. The blood on the coat representing that he was dead, thrown into a pit representing his death, uh, lifted out of the pit representing his resurrection, sold into slavery, uh, faithful in all, every step. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he stayed faithful to God, and he got that great reward of being thrown into jail. <laughs> if you've never experienced stuff like that, you're probably just getting started. But uh, <laughs> those promises are for you too. You'll meet Officer Diaz. No, uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. But uh, you know, uh, and uh, he's rejected by his brothers. G John one goes to great length that though he came to his own, and his own rejected him. Right. But in the end, they had to receive him because he was their savior, etc. Elijah, because Jesus is, Elijah is the fountainhead of all the prophets, and Jesus is the ultimate prophet that all the prophets are pointing to. He reiterates their message and completes their message. In both Matthew and Luke, he has a covenant lawsuit against Jerusalem and Judea, stating all the things the prophets had promised, all the way from prophet Moses in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, all the way through to prophet Malachi 
And Jesus is saying, your house is left to you desolate. The temple's going to be torn down. I will build a new people of God, and I'm done with y'all. He spoke in Southern. No, <laughs> King James. No. We all know Jesus spoke in King James with Paul. So, uh, on and on and on. Uh, he's the final atonement. He's the better, more perfect sacrifice. He's the, be, you know, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. You know, one time I looked for word pictures of Jesus. Just in John chapter 1, I came up with 21 word pictures of Jesus in John chapter 1, including behold the Lamb of God who takes away the world. So read Exodus 12 and think about all the implications of who the Passover Lamb is because he is Christ. So this is important in regard to the Holy Spirit uh, because Jesus continues as the ultimate priest, prophet, and king even to this day. Now, Hebrews 13.8 says um, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is actually a doctrine called cessationism, and it's uh, taught by the majority of evangelicals that says the Holy Spirit was taken away in most of his miracles and manifestations, and just a little bit of the Holy Spirit, which you can't even do, but it's a, a little parts of the person of the Holy Spirit was left in the church, and so we can still feel the Holy Spirit a little bit, and, so, and he still draws people to Christ and stuff, but he doesn't do most of the stuff he, that, that he does. But he can't change. And Jesus' ministry continues the same. And if you, if you key into what Jesus had to say in John chapter 7, 37 through 39, Matthew 18, the Great Commission, 18 through 20, uh, Mark 16, 15 through 19, John 13 through 16, which is John's version of the Passover lamb, which Jesus is saying, first I'm going to set you a model of being a great servant leader. That's why he washed their feet first. That's important, because he's saying, I'm going to go to the Father, and the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in the same kinds of measures he's been on me, and you're going to continue my ministry, and there's no way you can handle the God-awful power of the most amazing, powerful thing, way bigger than hydrogen and atom bombs, if you're not going to be a servant leader. If you're going to use it to advance your TV shows, it's, you're, it's going to kill you. It's going to destroy the church and bring much damage to many. But if you use it to wash one another's feet, I, then, then you're going to properly use. That's because that's how I walked in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying. So wash one another's feet every day, all the time. Luke 24, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Acts 1, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. Acts 2, they receive power. Then he preaches to a crowd, and that crowd has people from 17 nations. And in, in the Bible, there's a kind of thing called a triangular number. And if you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 all the way to 17, it adds up to 153, which is why there was 153 fish. When Jesus said, put down your nets, because Jesus is over and over saying, this is for the whole world. 
And that's why Pentecost specifically mentions 17 nations, because both 17 and 70 in the Bible are symbolic numbers of all the nations. And so there's a concept in the Bible that the first fruits represent the whole. And so the day of Pentecost, God preached the gospel to the whole world. And it was just a matter of time till the rest of, just like when you hit the head pin in bowling, uh, the rest of the pins are going to be coming down. Of course, it is possible to hit the head pin in such a way that you have a split, but not with the gospel. (laughs) Because it's a better covenant than even bowling. (laughs) So, uh, all right, so. Um, let's follow this through. Jesus repeats all the miracles that are in the Old Testament. And he specifically does it out of his office of the great priest, the true once and for only sacrifice high priest, the great judge, the great prophet, and the great and ultimate king of Israel. And out of those offices, he does every miracle that all those people did by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And he ups the ante. Because he's saying, they were just a foreshadowing of me. And I've come to bring something to my people that's more than what they had in the Old Covenant. To expect less of the Holy Spirit in our midst is a heresy that comes out of the unbelief of modern Western culture. That's why you don't get it in cultures that aren't Westernized. You know, there are places all through Central, South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, where they just consider it normal for people to be raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are tens of thousands of American missionaries that have admitted we don't talk about that when we raise money in in America because it hurts our fundraising, but we do that on the mission field. We cast out demons. Now, We've gone through a virtual revival of paganism in our culture. When I was a kid, I, I couldn't believe, I wouldn't have, if you'd have said there would be psychic commercials and uh, shows about crossing over and necromancy to t- talking to familiar demon spirits of the dead and, and all this stuff would become mainstream and Disney, and uh, which you know kind of led a whole revival of anti-Christian magic and sorcery into our culture and, uh, and all this kind of stuff it would have seemed impossible. But here we are, and everyone thinks, I've never been to a church where they cast out demons. So you've got to do something with the fact that Jesus spent over one-third of his ministry casting out demons. Read the Gospels carefully, and you'll see that. And he was in a much more godly culture than us. So was Jesus not the Christ because he was just lying and accommodating himself to the psychological backwardness of his times? Because that's what, the, that's what that means if you believe that, which most Christians believe. You're saying Jesus was actually fooling the people. He was a deceiver. Everybody has been brainwashed in Western culture to think that anybody who believes in this kind of stuff must be nutty. But I beg to differ. It's the people who don't believe in this kind of stuff that are nutty. And they're bound up by, because 
just because you don't know about these things and live them and practice them doesn't mean they're not working in your life. So Jesus does all the same miracles. He added two specific things. He cast out demons all the time, and he healed people born blind. Now, I personally believe that the Bible is always talking in word pictures, and God had a reason for not healing anyone born blind until Jesus came along, because God is, is saying, eh, 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 arrow, flash, news, warning. Or what do they call it when they, uh, oh, a tease, when, like, after the commercial, we'll be back, don't go away. Like, you know, like, follow this. Jesus heals people born blind, which is everybody that's descended from Adam and Eve. And only Jesus can open the eyes of people born blind. He did that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit he's left for his church. So he does it more frequently and completely. He raises the dead. He prophesies more fully than all the prophets of the Old Testament combined. He completes their message. He calms the waters. You know, Joshua stopped the sun. Jesus cursed the fig tree. He walked on water. He calmed the waters. He demonstrated total dominance over nature. He created wine that was well-aged at the moment it was created. Now, I don't know a lot about viticulture. I've toured a few wineries and learned a few things over the years, but it takes a lot of knowledge and skill to, to age wine at the particular right temperature and so forth. And just like Adam and the stars and all the plants and everything in the six days of creation was created with age the second it was created. So Jesus created wine with age the second it was created. Don't even tear apart Jesus by saying it's grape juice or some other heresy, nuts, stuff like that. So he proclaimed the gospel to the poor. That's why in Matthew 7, 28, they say, they were all amazed when he got done with the Sermon on the Mount because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. What they were saying is, we've always known our scribes who are supposed to know what they're talking about are way off. We haven't really known what to do about that, but along comes Rabbi Jesus, and now we know there really is a real deal and a real interpretation, and there's someone who really knows what it, the Old Testament is saying. Thank God he sent Rabbi Jesus to get rid of all the nonsense in the Mishnah and the Midrash and all the other commentaries. Because the Bible sheds a lot of light on the commentaries. John 3.34 says, For whom, he whom God sent into the world speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Wow, that's powerful if you think about it. Uh, Acts 10.38 Peter speaking to Cornelius, which is interesting because this is way up in uh, Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and he's saying, Cornelius, you've already heard about. You already know as a fact. You're well acquainted with the reality that Jesus of Nazareth was a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, that God was with him, and he went about with, 
with power of the Holy Spirit, doing good and healing all who are oppressed of the devil. Anyone who has the Holy Spirit, if we got it all, is that like how you would characterize your day? If I called you on the phone at 11, 8 p.m. or something, uh, you know, you're a spirit-filled Christian, what would you do today? Well, I went about doing good and healing everyone who was oppressed by the devil. What would you expect me to have been doing? Like Jesus said to his parents, you know, like, I was, had to be about my father's business. Didn't you know that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, fortunately, he wasn't sarcastic like me, so he didn't throw in, duh, but, or anything. But... Oops. Thankfully, he was a little bit more gracious and sanctified. <laughs> I, that's the thing I'm most amazed at when I study the Gospels is that Jesus never goes like, Duh! <laughs> You're like, you knuckleheads! <laughs> Wake up! All right. Jesus' model of ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit is transitional to the fullness of Pentecost. And here's what I mean by this. This is very important. John 7.39 says, when Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me at the Feast of Booths. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the context and all. This he spoke about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now that's amazing. Think about that statement. The Holy Spirit was not yet given. We already showed that seven of the nine gifts of the Spirit happened all through the Old Testament. We showed that they happened every day in all the ministries of Jesus throughout his three and a half years of public ministry once he came out of the wilderness. He cast demons out of thousands of people. He healed thousands of people. By the Holy Spirit. He clearly said that he could not do it without the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean that the Holy Spirit was not yet given? In Matthew chapter 10, he sends out the disciples, 12, with his anointing of the Holy Spirit, a foreshadowing and a transition to what they were going to get at Pentecost, but not even as much as they were going to get at Pentecost. And they go around proclaiming the gospel, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, so forth. By the way, when Jesus cleansed lepers, Matthew uh, chapter 8, verse 3, is a really important, I wish I could go through all the verses, I'm out of time, but go through all the verses that I listed there in Matthew and Luke about Jesus cleansing lepers. Because he does something way beyond what Elijah did when he sent Naaman to wash in the pool. Elijah didn't even go, didn't even see Naaman. That's why Naaman was so upset. You're like, you spurned me. You didn't even come out. Jesus, it clearly says, he touched the leper. Now, that is so significant because you couldn't touch a leper or you would be unclean. And Jesus is saying, you guys have misinterpreted things. I, God's creative cleanliness and my holiness makes everything clean. It, uncleanness doesn't make that which is clean clean. That which is clean makes uncleanness clean. And I will love and touch this leper. And he will be made new again. And then when Jesus in Luke sends the ten, heals the ten lepers, and only one comes back, he doesn't say, way to go, other nine, because I sent you to the priest to show yourself to them, and you did what I said. 
He didn't say that, did they? But by the law, they were required to do that. The priests were the doctors, and they, they, came, they were to examine and find out if the leprosy was really healed before the person could be allowed back into society. Jesus said, where are those other nine? Did only this guy come back to thank me? Because Jesus is saying, this guy realized I am the priest. They're just a foreshadowing of me. And they came back to the real doctor priest person they should have that he that the other should have came to. They should have, while they were being cleansed as they were going, realized who I was and said, Aaron and all these descendants of Aaron are just a foreshadowing of this great priest that has arrived now, the true priest, the one and only high priest. Man, I wish I wasn't out of time. <clears throat> so, uh, I don't know. I'll probably end with a little bit more about Pentecost and the structure of the book of Acts next week. Maybe we'll make the structure of the book of Acts a separate message. But um, what you're going to see is that Pentecost is actually even something greater than, than the, the ministry of Jesus and his sending out. In Luke 10, he sends out the 70 others. Why? Because 70 represents all the nations. And Luke's gospel from Luke 4 on really focuses on, well, Luke 3 with the genealogy, that this is for the whole nations, for every nation. That's why Jesus sends out 70 others in Luke. And he sends them out with the power of the Holy Spirit that's on his ministry, but he's about to give them something better at Pentecost. And that is going to be for every Christian for all time till Jesus comes back because Jesus is never going to stop doing what he came to do. Amen.